Uh, we're going to continue in our study of the promises today. Uh, as we are thinking about the promise, of course, we talked, oh, this was several weeks ago. What happened last week? We have, oh, we had singing night, but I wasn't even here. That's why it's all a blur to me, because I wasn't here last Sunday night, because uh, of sick children. Uh, so it's been a couple of weeks since we were in the study of the promises. Uh, and so we're, we're talking about the promise of grace this evening. Given the significance and the seriousness of the promise of justice, we need something more. This was the main point from last week, that the promise of justice is the underpinning of all of the other promises. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, following the prince of the power of the air, carrying out the passions of the flesh. The end result is wrath, right? We are children of wrath by nature, Romans 3.22, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says it in Ephesians 2, right? We were all this way. We were all once dead in our trespasses. We were all once children of wrath. There's no distinction. Anyone who sins, you fall short of the glory of God, you're, you're due for wrath. That's the promise of justice, right? Sin will be punished. Wrongdoing will be avenged. Sin will be ultimately exposed, identified, revealed, and there will be retribution. That's the promise of justice. And if this were the end of the story, then life would basically be hopeless, right? And we have, I have a note here. I want to do a brief digression. The promises of God, while important to apologetics, we talk about apologetics, the defense of Christianity, promises of God are not themselves foundational evidence for God's existence, right? We're thinking about, okay, is scripture reliable? Does God exist? Why should I trust the New Testament? Was Jesus son of God? These are all questions that exist apart from the promises of God. The reason we are thinking so seriously about the promises of God is when we consider God's existence, we consider the deity of Christ, we consider the evidence of scripture, it becomes clear, it becomes rational and reasonable to think, oh yeah, God does exist, the Bible is reliable, that's why these promises matter so much. But here's where I, I want to bring this up. People can get it reversed. We want to believe certain things. We want certain things to be true. Wanting something to be true does not make it so. Conversely, not liking something in the Bible, not liking some attribute of God, does not mean he's not real or the Bible's suddenly not true. The promises of God in the, as they stand in fear and in hope stand apart from the question of is God real? And we have to deal with it as they come. The promise of justice is in some ways nice, in some ways terrifying, as it should be. But whether or not how I feel about do I like God's sense of justice, do I like that God's going to bring wrath, is irrespective. It doesn't matter. That's irrelevant to the question of is the Bible true? Is God real? Does he exist? Was Jesus God? We come to the promises of God here. The promise of grace, which we're talking about tonight, that's great. People like talking about that. People want to talk about that. That is not all we need. We need more than that. We need the broad swath of God's promises. We find ourselves in a position based on what we can know about God, his existence, his morality, his character, his purpose. We see it exemplified in Christ. What we come to understand as we understand these questions, he is holy. I am not. His nature determines the results of that. His nature demands then consequence. And if that's the end of it, 
that would be horrible, right? That would be the end of all hope. And so we find ourselves in the position of most of humanity throughout history. We think about uh, whatever nation you want to put in there. Mesopotamians, Egyptians, Gre uh, Greco-Roman cultures, Persian cultures. We have several Arab cultures. We have Chinese cultures. All throughout history, mankind finds themselves in this position, believing in God, some sort of deity, that for the most part is fickle, does bring retribution, does bring punishment. And so for most of human history, people sort of lived in fear of the gods. Like, they're, they're, they're going to bring sort of retribution and punishment upon me. I need to be doing what's right. That's how most people have thought about God throughout history. And we, if we're not careful, can get too far into that mode that God is a being primarily to be feared, primarily to be wary of. Fortunately for us, as we continue in promises, that's not the end of the story. The entire Bible narrative, this is not an understatement, the entire Bible narrative fulfills the purpose of providing more than justice. If it was just justice, that was all that God's character demanded, we wouldn't need the Bible at all. I can understand God's justice without the Bible. I can understand that based on very basic fundamental principles of God's existence and, and moral character, and, and we think about the moral argument for God's existence. The only purpose for the Bible is to bring more than that, grace. From the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they're cast from the garden, they sin. There's a just consequence for that, right? The just consequence is what? Going to kick you out of the garden. Now you're going to die. That was the great lie of Satan, of course, right? You're not going to die. But they did. They did die. And from the very beginning, we have the promise to the serpent, right? I'll put enmity between your offspring and, and her offspring. He's going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel, foreshadowing this conflict to come. And then the rest of the Bible narrative. What's the point of the Bible narrative? God doesn't want to end with justice. If God cared only about justice, we'd just be done. We kicked out of the garden. Now we're lost. Hooray for, or not hooray, but the opposite of hooray. Boo for us. And that's the end of the story. Really, the entire Bible is about God wanting to supply grace. Not just justice. Grace. From the very beginning to the very end of the Bible. That's the point. It's not justice. It's more than justice. Better than justice. And so the promise of grace, even in the Old Testament, we're going to read, uh, we can't go too far down the rabbit hole here. We're going to read a couple of passages. First, note in his character. The promise of grace first appears in the Old Testament primarily in the character of God in dealing with the Israelites. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, and then skipping to verse 11. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all people for his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. From his dealings with Israel, he makes it clear. We're not doing this because you're so great. We're not doing this because you are better than the other people. You're not more in number. You're not, you're not really special. You're special by virtue of me choosing you. That's what God is saying to Israel. His very basic carrier, uh, character, not just justice, but grace, providing what is undeserved. And in Israel, what was undeserved was their special chosenness. That was undeserved by Israel. I'm not doing this because you're so great. I'm doing this because of who I am. God's promise of grace, like the promise of justice, rests in his character. 
And in fact, why the Bible exists at all? Because God is gracious. Again, if God were not gracious, we could just leave it at the garden and we're done. That's it. But God's promise of grace rests in his character as a gracious being who is willing to give and provide more than is deserved, to bless above and beyond what we would consider strictly fair. It's not really fair that the Israelites got to be a special people. That was an act of grace, an act of grace that God chose from the beginning to do to show us his character. And we see it more clearly in some of the promises here. Zechariah 12, 10. I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitter, bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Later in Zechariah 13, 1, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And we see the promise of justice play out over and over in the Old Testament. Israel is given laws, they're given commandments, they can't do them, send into captivity. They can't do them, send into destruction. They can't do them, a nation conquers them. Sometimes it's the Philistines, sometimes it's the Assyrians, sometimes it's the Babylonians, sometimes it's just themselves falling into poverty and dis disrepair. But that was justice. I gave you the commandments and you chose not to do them, so you're destroyed, so you're not blessed, so I'm, I'm not giving you the good thing. But even in that cycle, over and over, he looks forward to, God does, we're going to go past this. We're going to go beyond this continual cycle of sin and rebellion and, and punishment, sin and rebellion and punishment, and we're going to get into true grace. I will pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And of course, we can, obviously in Zechariah 12.10, we can see who this is embodied in, right? This, this foreshadowing fulfilled in Christ. They will look on him who, what? They will look on him whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourns over an only child. We just read about it this morning in the crucifixion, right? Of course, in the moment, it doesn't really come to pass, but then it comes to pass much later. John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, that is the Son, has made him known. The law given through Moses, that's the contrast versus grace and truth, right? The law was given through Moses through Jesus, grace and truth. The law which demonstrates why the promise of justice is so terrifying. I've often asked, right? We talked about it in our study in Hebrews on Saturday. We've talked about it in our study on Thursday nights. It's one of the common questions when you think about the old law. Why go through the whole rigmarole with the whole old law at all? Why do that whole business? To show us why we shouldn't want justice. That's why the law was given, to show us why we really shouldn't be going for justice. Because what happened with the law? They gave him the, he gave them the law, they didn't obey. He gave them the law, they didn't obey. And then there was punishment, then there was retribution. Now we come to the embodiment, not of justice, but of something greater, the embodiment of grace, 
full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. We're not, we're not in justice mode anymore because we couldn't do it. We can't, we can't overcome justice. Now we're into something better. Romans 3 verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And we might say apart from justice. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We keep using the word justice because that's the root of all of this, right? The idea of justification, that we're made just, we're made right with him. The righteousness of God appearing apart from the law, the law that we could not follow, the law that if we're left to the law of justice, the promise of justice, we're all due for retribution. Now we've received what? Justified by his grace through belief in Jesus. The manifestation of God's grace is Jesus, who comes, shows us what it looks like to have justice. This is what you should have been doing this whole time. And then the most unjust act in the history of the world, he's killed. An act of profound injustice to provide great, that's the propitiation, that word propitiation. It was an act of injustice that supplies grace for us. Romans 5, 2 through 9, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God knowing that not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. While we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though Perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die, but God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, now that we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Remember the first verse we read? We were all dead in our trespasses and sins of a part of those who followed the prince of the power of the air. By nature, children of wrath. Now we have obtained access by faith into grace in which we stand. The grace that says what? What's the grace? Yeah, you're a sinner, but you're not going to face the consequence for it. Yeah, you couldn't follow the law, but you're not going to face all the stuff that happened in the Old Testament, that time and time again of retribution and punishment and destruction. Yeah, you can't do what I said, but I'm going to provide a way for you to avoid the consequence anyway. So what do we need to know? about the promise of grace. First and foremost, the promise of grace depends on God's character and not our own. Hallelujah for that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. That's the whole point in Romans, right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. There's nothing that we could do to make Christ die. There's nothing that we would do to justify his death. There's no, no goodness I could do, no act of service, no, no act of obedience that would make it fair that Christ died. Nothing I can do to make that right. 
It is an act of grace. Romans 5, 6, why we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And you can go a couple of ways with this. The first way we're going to look at it is this way. This is good because it means I can't work myself out of God's offer of grace, right? It, it doesn't depend on me in the first place. I'm already lost and sinful. I'm not going to be more lost and sinful. The grace is offered not based on how bad I am, but based on how good God is. Our default position is wrath. What am I going to do that's going to get in the way of God offering grace if I'm already a child of wrath? I'm already weak. I'm already a sinner. But this leads us to an important point. The promise of grace, while in some ways is unconditional, in other ways is contingent. It is unconditional in that God offers it to anyone. Romans 3, right? We read this already, but we'll, we'll clarify a little bit of the context. Romans 3.22, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's offered to everyone. It's unconditional in that sense. There, you can't be so horrible that God is not willing to offer grace to you. There's no sin too great, nothing you're going to do because you're already lost and he's still willing to offer the grace. That's unconditional grace, offering it to us. On the other hand, the contingency of grace in that being offered grace is not the same thing as receiving grace. We have to make this point very clearly. God has set some parameters, ultimately, on who's going to receive it, right? The offer of grace open to all, resting on his character, not ours, resting on his acts, not mine. Jesus died for the sins of the world already. That's already happened. But we've read it already over and over in these texts that we've read. The grace is reserved for those who, what? Believe those who have faith in Jesus. And we'll, we'll go back to those and read that one more time in Romans, oh wow, it's really far back. Uh, Romans chapter three, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward to, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So we can think about grace in two different ways. The unconditional nature of it that is open for everyone, offered for all, not dependent on your goodness, not dependent on anything that you do, not dependent on how well you can earn it. Just here it is, unconditionally offered to all, but contingent in that receiving what is offered depends on our response. It does. It depends on our response. Whether we believe whether we're willing to obey, whether we're willing to do what God wants, to accept the offer that is given. And so we're lumping a lot of stuff in with grace as we go through this series. This is a sermon or a, a series note about this series. We're going to lump a lot of stuff in. We're talking about the offer itself as an act of grace, but we're also including forgiveness, the letting go of a debt incurred. That's grace. Redemption, a price being paid. That's grace, right? That God is going to let go of the debt that I've incurred through sin. That's forgiveness. That's, that's grace. The price, the redemption, he uses the word propitiation in another place. That's grace, that he paid the cost of my sin. Mercy. Mercy being restraint from punishment. You deserve some horrible fate, but I'm not going to give you that punishment, whatever that is. That's also grace, right? Now, we're, so we're lumping a lot of stuff in here. Salvation, 
being removed or taken out of some horrible fate. All of these are tied to grace. And we could go into, we're not going to do it, but uh, if, we, if you wanted to do a deeper dive, right, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of redemption, the promise of mercy, the promise of salvation. But I think most fundamentally, we can wrap it up in this idea of grace, that God wants to give us something better than justice. And that includes forgiveness, redemption, mercy, salvation. That includes all of those things in the offer of grace. And so we must conclude, like many of the promises of God, this promise should be transforming. That there's a change that occurs in my life because of the offer of grace. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. Now, we read earlier at the beginning... You're dead in your trespasses, uh, like, like the sons of disobedience, by nature children of wrath, all of that stuff. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The duality of this text is interesting. The salvation that is through grace is not the result of works, but it should absolutely result in works, right? We can think about the nature of the, the era of causality. My goodness is not the thing that compels God to offer me grace, but the offer of grace should compel me to goodness. It should change the way I live. And if we're wrapping this up as a contingent promise, the promise of grace contingent on faith in Jesus. If I genuinely believe in Jesus, if I genuinely believe the things that he said, if I genuinely believe in who he is, if I genuinely believe in the promises that he's given me, why wouldn't I change? Why wouldn't I do the good works that he prepared beforehand? And we might say it this way. If I'm unwilling to do the good works, can I really say that I believe in who Jesus is? I would submit to you, no. If you're unwilling to do the good works that he has given to us to do, that he has prepared beforehand, you have some broken version of faith. A faith that is not what it should be. A faith that is definitely not what God is looking for in those he's going to give grace to. Romans 6, 8 through 14. If we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. This is after in Romans 6, right? The beginning of Romans 6. That discussion of death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus, the unity that we have in immersion, that process through which we go, again, contingent on Jesus already did that. He, we're emulating something he already did as an act of grace. And I would say, Jesus did that for you, regardless of whether you accept. It's already been done. But my acceptance of it is key. If we've died with Christ, we believe we'll live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. When you were obeying its passions, what were you? You were dead. That's what he said in Ephesians. 
dead in your trespasses, following the course of your passions. You've been made alive by grace. So stop obeying sin. Do not present your members to sin as, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Again, the main contrast in the promise of grace is with the promise of justice. Justice, which is wrapped up in this word law. Law, commandments, over and over in the Old Testament, you do them or you die. You do them or you die. We didn't do them, so we died. That's what it means to be dead in our trespasses, right? What, trespassing what? What are we trespassing? We're trespassing the law. We're dead in our trespasses. We're made alive as fundamentally an act that was not just, not fair. Jesus did it of his own volition. That was the whole purpose of the, the plan, right? The whole point of the garden. I don't want to do this. Is there some other way we can do it? Ultimately, God doesn't verbally say it, but the implied answer is, no, there's no other way to do this, Jesus. You're doing it this way. This is what's necessary for me to offer grace to the rest of the world. And so Jesus goes through it. And now we come to him believing, hopefully, in the promise that he's offered, accepting who he is as God, accepting what he did, dying for our sins, believing in the promises and the commands that he has given us. And so what is the command? What is the implication? Stop obeying sin. Stop living the way that you were living. The way that you were living before that led to death. The way that you were living before that led to the just reward of, of damnation. Stop living that way. Not because you're going to earn your salvation. Not because that's how you get into heaven. That's, that's what he's saying all this throughout these verses. The promise of grace, not dependent on your ability to follow, because you can't. You can't follow. But nonetheless, I'm going to do the best that I can to obey God. And I'm going to do the best that I can to be righteous, to present myself as, a, as an instrument of God's righteousness. And the promise of grace, then, is such that when, yes, I inevitably fail, as I know that I will, as we all will, right? I, I know you do. I don't know if you sinned today, but I bet you sinned in the last three days, probably today, if we're being honest. Fortunately, I'm not under law anymore. I made that sin whenever the last sin that you committed was. But because we're no longer under law, we're under grace, God's going to overlook that through the blood of Jesus, the propitiation for my sins. He's going to overlook that and allow me to continue to be an instrument of righteousness. That's the beauty of the promise of grace. That even though you cannot be perfect, as you're striving and doing what you can, walking in the good works he prepared for you to walk, doing to the best of your ability what God wants you to do, he's willing to overlook the times that you fail. He's willing to have those be cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus. But make no mistake, if we're unwilling or unwilling, un unable, let's say unable or unwilling, to do the best that we can, then God is not obligated to ultimately give us that grace. It is an offer by itself, by its very nature, that he does not have to give. That's what makes it grace. 
because he gives it out of the goodness and love of his character. And so we end the question. Are you ready to accept God's promise of grace? I mean, the answer is just basically yes or no, right? Except it's not just yes or no, because there are some contingencies. It might say, yes, I'm ready to accept God's grace. Hooray for you. Are you willing to let that change who you are? 